It happens every year this Thursday, every year it, it happens that we come together, friends and family, and we celebrate what is been called and what is known as Thanksgiving. Um, as I was thinking about that, I, I kind of reminisced in my own mind, I don't know if you can do that or not, but I did it, and uh, I was thinking about a time that I, I sat at my grandmother's table, and uh, we had invited some some folks to uh, come there from the community, and she was ever the one that would be prim and proper, and the whole spread was out in front of us, and everybody was digging in. The first helping was gone, and now it was time for the second helping, and my cousin, my cousin bit into his biscuit, and there was a beetle, a beetle in the Bisquick biscuit. I mean, everybody just put the rest of the food down. <laughs> Think we've had enough? It's time for us to go over there and watch the football games and spend some time just talking. There are some assurances at my grandmother's house now. One, no biscuits. Hadn't had a biscuit there since. Anytime. I mean, anytime. There, there has been that assurance, but also the assurance that my mom and all my aunts are the ones who do the cooking at that grandmother's house. This morning, I want to give you some assurances, not beetles inside of biscuits, but I want to give you three assurances that you can be thankful for, that we can be thankful for. As we come to the close of Romans chapter 8, I want to uh, spend our time this morning there looking verse 26 down through the end of the chapter. It is a somewhat large passage, and so I want us to spend some time there. I want you to uh, listen as I read these words, but as I read the words and you are listening, I want you to think about the heart of Paul writing to this church, writing to the church at Rome, and why he is saying what he's saying. Because he's encouraging them, because some days ahead for them are not, look, are not looking too bright. And he wants to drive home this assurance, or these assurances. And I want you to hear from verse 26 down through the end of the chapter in verse 39. I want you to hear all the things that are happening from heaven's side, from God's point of view. So I'm going to read it audibly. You follow along either on the screen or with your copy of God's Word there in the seat. And let's hear what God has to say and the assurances that we see there. Likewise, verse 26 states, Likewise, the the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know. And we know. Verse 28. That for those who are called, excuse me, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be, this is Christ, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, How will he not also with him, with Christ, the Son, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no. No, in, in, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, what sweet words. Father, what sweet words penned by your servant, Paul. Penned to a church living in a time where persecution was beginning to be ramped up. What sweet assurances, awesome assurances that we find. Not just three, Lord, I've grouped those together, but Father, not all those assurances of what you have done and what you were doing and what you are doing even in our midst today. As we long to see your son Jesus face to face. Father, as we uh, go through this time this morning, as we go through these 
assurances, Lord, I pray that you would speak. Father, you would speak into our hearts and into our lives. If we truly would be thankful. We would be thankful for all the things that you have given us, all the provisions that you have provided, all the blessings, materially speaking, but Father, also these assurances we are to be thankful for. So Lord, I pray that you would speak in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Three awesome assurances this morning from Romans chapter 8. The first is found in verses 26 through 29, and the awesome assurance is this, that a promise is given for all of life. A promise is given to you, a promise is given to me. It has been given, it has been stated, it has been written down in these verses that there is this promise that has been given to you, given to me, about all of life. And there's different aspects of this promise, but let me read the promise to you again in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good. So you and I need to understand the promise. The promise is that all things work together for good. But before we can get to what that promise and unpack that promise, you and I have to understand who it is that's giving it. It's God who is giving it, and you and I must come to the point where we trust this one. God. The word know there refers to an absolute. Uh, One commentator put it this way as um, I was studying. He said, it refers to absolute, positive knowledge which one has beyond a doubt. It is the common knowledge of the Christian. A settled, intuitive knowledge which the Holy Spirit makes real in our hearts and our minds. It's our ability to have confidence in the midst of a really bad situation. And having that confidence is being based on the character of who God is, who made the promise in the first place. God is faithful. He's truthful. He has unlimited power. He is sovereign over all things. He is full of grace. He is full of mercy. Our great God is good. And Paul has confidence and he is writing in this confidence to those at Rome who find themselves living in a culture that is changing. Do you resonate with that. Living in a culture where it seems that the ones who are in power are not thinking straight to the point that they are beginning to take Christians and light their gardens with them. Who are beginning to take 
the church at Rome that Paul is writing to and beginning to pluck them out and use them as scapegoats for their plans of advancement for the empire, for the palace. The slum areas of Rome were burned and blamed on the Christians because they needed more space for the ruling power and the ruling party. He's writing to a group of people who are seeing the culture all around them change. And Paul says, here's an assurance for you. That God will cause all things for the good. for Those who love Him. Now, let's talk about that for one second. You and I need to understand this, that what Paul's not saying... Okay, the first thing that he's not saying, he's not saying that whatever happens is good. Because everything that happens to you and everything that happens to me is not good. That's a good place for you to say amen because you have lived this thing called life and some of it is terrible. Some of it is in the midst of valleys and you are struggling through it and you and I need to understand, yeah, right now what I'm going through, what's happening in my life and what's happening in my job or what's happening in my family, what's happening to me right now, it's not good. And I don't see how in the world that promise is true. But you need to say And we need to understand, not just say, but we need to understand. He's not saying that whatever happens to you is good. He's not saying that the suffering and the evil or the tragedy that is coming about to the folks at Rome or coming about to you from the outside or even from the inside, that that is good. He's not saying that things have a way of just working out. And just throwing your hands up in the air and saying, okay, it's this thing called life and i got to walk through it. It doesn't really matter what I do, so therefore it's going to be good. He's going to cause it for good, so it really doesn't matter what the decision that I make today or the decision that I made last night or the decision that I made with that guy or with that girl or in this job or that. No, he's not saying that either. Is he saying that we will be able to understand God's activity immediately for your life and my life? He's not saying that. So what is he saying? I read a, uh, an excerpt in a book by uh, Randy Alcorn, and he uh, gave an illustration about a time that he saw his mom baking cakes Maybe you were there as a youngster and your mom would lay out all the ingredients on the counter, the flour, the eggs, the, the sugar, lay out the, the ingredients there, the baking powder, the vanilla, and He stated, you know what, I went through and as they were there, my mom was turned around looking for the whole recipe and he just started taking his finger and tasting all those things and he said, there's no way in the world this is going to be good. Only thing that tastes good is the sugar in and of itself. But then he watched his mom put all the ingredients together, put all the the batter in the pan and put the pan in the oven and set the timer and it came out. She pulled it out and it smelled good. 
and he took his knife, took his fork, took a piece of the cake and actually ate it. And there it was. It was amazing. Why do I recall that illustration for you? It's because right now all you can see possibly is some raw eggs. All you have in front of you is some baking soda and just a whole pile of flour. But what you don't see is God is stirring all that up. And he's going to put it in his oven. He's going to put it in that oven and it's going to cook and it's going to come out and the aroma of your life and my life. All things work together for good. We looked at the word no, we look now at the word together. It translates this Greek word, translate together, which we get synergy. The, the word means that all these different things are working together to accomplish something greater than they could produce individually. Everything that is in your life is coming together and it is working together for good. It's a conditional promise, though, and, and you and I need to understand this conditional promise. Who's the promise for? Read the verse again there. Who's the promise for? And we know that for those who what? Those who love God, the promise is that all things work together for good. Th- this promise, you and I, we hear it taken out of context, that everything's good. We hear it that it's for everybody. It's not for everybody. It's for those who love God. You look back in the book of Exodus, and you see the plagues being being laid out there. And as you see the plagues being laid out there, you see that um, Pharaoh is there, and Pharaoh is saying no, and Pharaoh is saying no, and Pharaoh is saying no. And every time that he says no, the first six or seven times that there is a plague, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then there's a shift. What's the shift? The shift is this. Eight, nine, and ten, God hardened his heart. You turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and you listen to these words that Paul writes and he says, hey, there is this aroma that is being lifted up and it's being lifted up to the nostrils of God and some of that aroma is from death to death and some of that aroma is from life to life and that aroma of that sacrifice that is being lifted up is pleasing in the nostrils of God. What does he mean by death to death and life to life? It means this, that he being a just God He being a righteous God, somebody that does not want to give their whole lives to him, that does not want to spend an eternity with him, he says, that's fine. That brings pleasure to me because that shows off one of my attributes, that I am just, that I am righteous, and that you, if you're going to come, you've got to come on my terms, not on your terms. And then there's the sacrifice that is from life to life. Those that are believers in Christ, our lives are being lifted up into his nostrils, that aroma. And it is a pleasing sacrifice. All things work together for 
good to those who love God. You and I have issues in our life. The unbeliever has issues in his and or her life. God's calling here is a calling for a person to be saved. The Holy Spirit convicts a person of his or her sin, clarifies the person and the work of Christ and draws him or her to salvation to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul wrote it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, but we all, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord and also the Spirit. We see this promise and this assurance is that a promise has been given for all of life. And I don't know where you are right now. I don't know where you are in, in life. You're seeing that life is terrible at this moment. Life has been a struggle up to this point. Or maybe everything seems to be working out and you can see all the little pieces coming together and everything looks fine and dandy until six weeks from now. But that promise is true. That promise for those who are believers is true. That no matter what you do, no matter what goes on in your life at this moment or that moment, that promise is true that God is working it all for good. Second, assurance. You and I get down on ourselves so often and we forget this assurance. But a second assurance for you today that we need to be thankful for is that God is pro you. God is for you. God is pro you. Look there in verse 29 through, excuse me, look there at verse 30 through 33. So he says this, um, Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is, what? For us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Christ, with the Son, graciously give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who has been raised and is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. The assurance is this, that God is for you. You're like, if God knew what I did last night, he wouldn't be for me. He knew what you did last night, and he's for you. If God knew what was happening in my life, he knows what's happening in your life, and he's for you. If God knew my thoughts, he knows your thoughts, and he's for you. If God, he does, and he is for you. 
He is the one who knows you intimately. He is the one who changes you radically. He is the one who calls you decisively. He is the one who justifies you so graciously. And he is the one who glorifies you eternally. It is this God who causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. It's that God who is for you. The problem is not that God is for you. The problem is so often you're not for you. You let that sink in. The problem is not that God doesn't know you intimately. It's that you can't get past some of those thoughts, some of those words, some of those actions. You can't believe that there is this God who has given you everything. Do you see the argument that he makes? God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him, gave Christ up for all of us. How will he not graciously give us all things? If he's given us his very best, if, if he has given you his best, for your salvation. Think about that. God saw that you needed a Savior. And God thought, okay, how is it that I can save Brian Tillman? And how is it that I can save you? You put your name in there. The only way that he could do that is if he gave himself, if he gave his son. Do you not think that he would have done something else If he could have, but he couldn't, so therefore he said, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you him. He gave us Christ for all of us. He didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also give you everything that you need in your life today? How will he not also give you everything that you need in your life this week? How will he not also give you everything that you need at those moments that you need it when he's already given you his very best? He will. God is for you. I've stated it this way a number of times. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you less than he already loves you because he's given you his very best. There's nothing that you can do to make him love you more because he's given you his very best. He has given us Christ. He loves us. You and I need to come to the point where we understand that, yes, but where we also get past the point where we don't love ourselves. And it's not, hey, let's go look in the mirror and look at ourselves and say, I love you, self, I love you. No, it's not that. But it's you and me understanding all that He has done for you, that He is at this moment, no matter how far you think you are away from Him, He is for you. And He is for me. J.I. Packer stated it this way. I love this quote. Put your thinking cap on because you're going to need it. One day, one day we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, Packer states, we shall see that nothing which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced that happiness 
has been left with us. What higher assurance do you want than that? The picture has been painted a number of times. The story has been told. The illustration has been given a number of times. And if I had a Bill Cosby, I know that's a terrible name these days, but if I had a Bill Cosby sweater, I would have worn it today inside out. Because on the inside, if you remember that show and you remember, I mean, there is, there is all kinds of geometric shapes going everywhere. And it's, quote, pretty, end quote. But on the inside, it looks like a mess. And that's what your life looks like oftentimes. But we don't see the tapestry, how it is on the other side. And that's what Packer is trying to get across That nothing, literally nothing that could have increased your happiness has been denied. And nothing that could have reduced that happiness has been left. And there's this glorious picture. And it is your life and it is my life. The assurance is that God is for you and God is for me. He's for us. The promise has been given for all of life. And then we see finally in verse 35 down through the end of the chapter... We see this assurance that God's creation can't separate you. Read those verses again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Or danger. There's six right there out of seven. And you remember who's writing this? Paul is writing this. Paul has gone through so much tribulation up to this point. He's had 39 lashes given to him multiple times. He's been stoned and outside the city and left for dead. He has been shipwrecked. He has been placed in chains. He has been carted off. He has been spit on. He has been hit. He has been persecuted day in and day out. Shall tribulation separate Paul, separate you from the love of Christ? No. Shall distress He thought that he was alone numerous times. You read the words and he says, everybody's left me. Everybody has left me. Has that separated him from God? No. Has persecution? No. Has famine? No. Has nakedness? No. Has danger? No. And then he writes the seventh one, or the sword. And he recalls a passage of Scripture out of Psalm 44. Psalm 44, verse 22, the psalmist says, For your sake, Lord, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And Paul understands that after the word sword, and he states that or quotes that. But can that separate us from God? resounding answer in verse 37 no no in all things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure i am sure 
that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pull out just a couple of things about this, these two lists. The first, we see those tribulations and we see the, the sword. One of his last letters, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29, all those verses indicate that Paul had already suffered those six things and he was looking forward to that seventh. He was looking forward in that he knew it was coming. He knew the end was coming. You see in verse 37, all these things, we are more than conquerors. The Holy Spirit uses Romans chapter 8 in your life and in my life to conform us to the image of God. These experiences, uh, one commentator stated it this way, these experiences increase our reward that is for us in heaven. We must understand that what Paul is saying is that not only do these various hardships not hurt us, but they also they help us because they work together for our good. And he says, I am convinced of something. And what you're walking through right now, you may not be convinced of. You're like, Brian, I'm just ready to give up. Maybe that's where you are. I'm ready to give up because I don't see at this moment that God is for me. All I see is mess. All I see is a job that doesn't have any meaning outside of 8 to 5. All I see is a family in chaos. All I see is there's no hope whatsoever that I can feel or that I can sense or that I can see. And Paul finishes out and he says, I am convinced. The ESV says, for I am sure. It is a word that says, this has already been presented to me and I I understand it and there's absolutely no way that I'm moving from this point. It's a perfect tense verb that says, I have become and I remain convinced. There is surety there. And to him, this is an unalterable conclusion that death, life, angels, principalities, which is the spiritual realm, things that are present, things that would come, powers. And then he throws in these two words where I'm going to close. I'm landing the plane, I promise. He uses these two words. He says, neither height nor depth. And I want you to I want you to recall, because there is a time in your life that you can recall. Maybe it was uh, not too many nights ago, because I, I love going outside when it's cold. And it's clear. And I love standing there and I love looking at the stars that are there on a cool, crisp 
clear night because they seem to shine brighter. And Paul uses that terminology right here. He says, go out there and look out to the edge of our galaxy, to the edge of the universe, and see the height of those stars that are there. And that can't separate you. And that can't separate me from God. And if he uses the word height there, what's the word for depth? One would think that he would mean to go look in the, in the bottom of the Sea of Galilee or go look in the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea and you can see that that does not separate. But no, that's not the word. The word that is used here is still an astronomical word. It's still a, a word about the stars. And it speaks of this star at its low point. So what he's saying is this, that nothing at either end of the infinite of outer space can separate you and can separate me from God's love. And you're going to walk through some junk, folks. You already have. You will walk through more and you need to know this assurance that nothing can separate you from God's love. He's right there with you. You may not understand it right now. You may not understand it five years from now. You may not understand it 25 years from now. But there'll be a day when you stand in front of Him face to face and it'll all be clear. The man's name was Ron Dunn. He was one of my favorite preachers. Or is even now becoming one of my favorite preachers. And he he buried his own son because his son committed suicide. And that was the beginning of 15 years of just agony. Three days after he buried his son, he opened the scripture to Romans chapter 8 and he preached that passage that we just read and we just sat through. After he closed his Bible that day, he went on a 10 year, 10 years, a whole decade length of time of depression. In that time of depression, he buried his mother, and before the end of it, he would bury his father. But as he is coming to the end, as about eight years into it, his dad reminded him of something that had happened to him. His dad was one who would lay in the bed at night, and he would just look up at the ceiling, and he would be praying for his son. He'd be praying for Ron Dunn. He would be praying for him and praying for him, praying that God would do something in his life. He said he woke up, this is his dad, he said he woke up in the middle of the night one night and he just sat right up and he said, God said, you know, I got to take him to this place so that I can use him. I got to bring all this stuff in his life so that I can use him. He said he went to sleep, and he never prayed for his son like that again. Now, 
two more years pass, and he's on his deathbed, and he uh, tells Ron that, and Ron's like, I wish you would have told me. <laughs> Hello, I had two years, you know. But even from that, there was another five years before he fully came out of that. But the last 15 to 20 years of Ron Dunn's ministry, it's phenomenal how God used him here, how God used him in Europe, how God used the man. But he had to walk through all that stuff. And some of you have to walk through, and I have to walk through all that stuff. Maybe we don't have a dad or a mom who could tell us. But God just told you, I will work all those things for the good. No matter what you find yourself in at this moment, God will work all those things for the good. May we rest there. Father, I bow before you. God, I, uh, I thank you. In your faithfulness, Father, in your understanding, every single one of us, you desire to use. You desire to use us in different ways. You have given us different life experiences Father, one day we will stand before you. And the tapestry of my life will be laid in front of my eyes and I will see, start to finish, you weaving in and out, you weaving all those things together because you predestined me. You you determined that in the end that I would look like Jesus. You called us. You justified us. Father, that moment, that day, you will glorify us. We will be just like you. Father, may we, may I understand that and may I rest there today. That this journey that we're on, ups and downs, struggles, and triumphs. May our eyes stay focused on you.